At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. DNA is the blueprint of life. Sitting there on a shelf saying, solve me. Rapid DNA, it's essentially a miniature laboratory. How much DNA does the FBI have on file? And they develop that DNA profile within less than two hours. This is, this is unbelievable. And really, quite frankly, almost out of some science fiction movie. There are millions of profiles. Our guest today is Dr. Liliana Moreno from the DNA Support Unit within the famed FBI Laboratory. We'll learn about the remarkable advances in crime solving brought about by the newest applications of DNA science. And we'll learn what's just around the corner as police departments in cities across America jump into a new era of biometric identification. Dr. Moreno. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's our it's our pleasure. Let's launch right into what is an exciting discussion of an exciting time in the science applications that help law enforcement solve crimes. But I want to start with your story, Lily, because it is compelling. And I believe it's a story of tenacity and persistence to get to success. Tell us a little bit about your journey into the FBI where it started, maybe some of the detours that took place, and how you got to be where you are today. There were a lot of detours. I'll try to make it short. (laughs) So I am originally from sunny Puerto Rico. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I attended my undergraduate years of study in, 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 in the island. I obtained my bachelor's in science from the University of Puerto Rico. And after that, I went to medical school where... I was for two years and I completed a master's in biomedical sciences. After that, I, because of personal reasons, needed to move to Miami. And the hope was to finish medical school in Miami. However, I was unable to submit my transfer papers on time. And because I know how I am, if I had chosen to start working, it was going to be very difficult to go back to school after I started to earn a paycheck. So I was... The idea was to be a medical examiner. That was my goal. So I decided to go to a neighboring university called Florida International University and pursue a master's in forensic sciences while I, while I waited 
so I could apply again for medical school. So I did that. I got accepted and I completed my master's in forensic sciences with a minor in biology from Florida International University. They subsequently hired me to be the lab manager of the forensic institute there, where I was able to help other students and guide them through their research, as well as manufacture proficiency testings for laboratories across the nation. When I was ready to move on, they made me a very tempting offer. They said that if I stayed working there, they would pay for my PhD. And I will say now that it was probably the best mistake of my life to accept that. Um, It was very tempting because they would pay for it, but it was very challenging because I was working at the same time. I started my PhD. I had amazing mentors. And during the course of my PhD, uh, my mentor, my main mentor, told me about an opportunity at the FBI laboratory. He said that there were internships open and that I should apply. And I did so. I was supposed to be at the FBI for initially three months that got extended to six and subsequently eight months when I was supposed to return to Miami to finish my PhD. And the mentor at the FBI told me that I should apply for a position in the laboratory and that I should stay and finish my PhD here while I worked at the laboratory. I originally was not too thrilled by the idea because I needed to finish my studies, but he said that he would stay by my side and he would help me and that he would come to the lab and be there with me so that I could uh, complete my research and finish my PhD. So I applied. I got the job. I started as a caseworker at the FBI laboratory. And at my lunchtime, I would run from one building to the other to set up experiments. After my shift was over, I would go back and finish the experiment or set up a new one. And I would stay nights and, and come weekends. And I owe it all to my three mentors that believed in me and pushed me. And if, if you if, if you allow me, I'll, I'll like to say their names. Uh, Dr. D. Mills, Dr. Bruce McCord, who was a former FBI employee, and Dr. Jim Robertson here at the FBI. Um, they they pushed me, they believed in me, and they, they are the reason I am where I am now. Yeah, the message here clearly is, among many messages, is that mentors make a difference. And I, I think many of our listeners hopefully will Will actually this will actually resonate with them both from a someone who's been mentored and and perhaps for them to take opportunities to do the same thing. Your story is also a story of initials. You went from um, heading down the road to becoming an MD, ended up becoming a PhD, working at the FBI on DNA. And so let's go with the last of those um, and talk a little bit at a very basic level of what DNA is. Tell our listeners, many of whom won't have science backgrounds, tell us what DNA is and why it's so important to crime solving. So DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. I know it is a complicated term. So from now on, I'm just going to call it DNA. And simply stated, DNA is the blueprint of life. It is our genetic instruction manual. It is what makes us who we are. It is. It ensures that we're built the way we're supposed to be built. And we obtain half of the information in that instruction manual from our mom and the other half from our dad. And unless we have an identical twin, each individual's instruction manual is unique. And this is what makes it so relevant to law enforcement applications. So, for example, when we perform forensic DNA analysis, we essentially zoom into specific areas of that genetic code and and we read it. And in doing so, we can determine the genetic makeup of a blood stain that was left in a crime scene or a biological fluid that was left behind in a rape case 
or the DNA profile of bones that were discovered next to a river. And we can compare that genetic makeup that we developed from those evidence samples to the genetic makeup from a suspect for that particular crime. And we can establish if there is a match or a relationship between those two individuals or between the the crime scene stain and that individual. And so um, many, many of us might be wondering the level of certainty that exists with DNA and, and the relationship, perhaps in comparison, good or bad, to a fingerprint. And how would you characterize that? And do we truly all have unique DNA? And what's the story with identical twins? So I don't know much about, about fingerprints other than everyone has a different fingerprint. However, I think the power of DNA comes from the fact that we can offer a statistic. We have databases that establish how common or how rare a a particular, we call them profiles, a particular instruction manual as a whole. How different is it from another individual's instruction manual? We can apply a statistical measure to it, a number, and we can provide that in court. And that gives a lot of weight and power to DNA. Whereas with fingerprints, we cannot necessarily do that. Now, identical twins are a little tricky because siblings and relatives, they have the instruction manuals that they get. They come, like I said before, half from mom and half from dad. Um, and it's like it's like getting a, a bag of, of M&Ms, right? And you, you get a bag of M&Ms from, from mom and you, and you pull out the M&Ms and put them in order. You just pick them at random and, and you will get different colors lined up, right? And you get a different bag of M&Ms and you line up the colors and you have the, the profile from mom and dad. And you get a copy from, exact copy from that lineup, gets passed on to you. Your siblings will get their DNA profile from the same bags of M&M, but when you pull them out, there's going to be some M&M, some M&M colors that line up perfectly. So you share some of the order, right? And some of them are going to be different. But because they came from the same bag, there's going to be some similarities between them. Whereas with a random, different individual that's not related to you, the order and the colors are going to be completely different. Identical twins, they receive the exact same genetic makeup as you because, well, you're created, you're created from the same sex cells. So you, you, we cannot distinguish identical, identical twins with DNA, whereas with fingerprints, we can because fingerprints, I believe, has some genetic component, but they also have an environmental component that uh, comes from the womb and, and the pressures that are applied and, and other stuff like that. So there is a benefit to fingerprints. But there's a lot of power to DNA, unless, of course, you have an identical twin. Mm. Do you um, do you study twins? Do you do you figure out um, how the latest applications of your science might apply to people who are twins or identical twins? We have cases. Certainly, we've had cases that um, are twins, and we have some new technology that might shed some light, and maybe maybe we'll be able to separate them in, in the near future. But as of right now, we we can't tell the difference. Gotcha. All right. So next question that many of us, I think, have is how much DNA does the FBI have on file and where does it all come from? So I don't know the exact number of how many DNA profiles we have on file, but I can tell you that the DNA filing cabinet, the the name of that cabinet is the National DNA Index System. It It has three folders. It has a folder for offenders. It has a folder for forensic unknowns. And then there's another folder for, for missing persons. The offender folder contains profiles developed from samples that are collected directly from individuals that were arrested for 
certain qualifying offenses, or convicted of certain crimes. The forensic unknown folder contains data that's generated from samples that are collected at crime scenes that could be the link to the possible perpetrator of such crime. And then the missing person folder contains DNA profiles developed from samples that were collected from unidentified remains and family members or relatives that are looking for missing individuals. I cannot tell you, like I said, an exact number, but there are millions of profiles in this filing cabinet. The forensic unknown folder and the offender folder, they get searched against each other on a daily basis to help link unsolved crimes to known offenders or possibly link unsolved crimes to each other. And the information comes from local, state, and federal agencies. So all of these agencies upload their data into this repository, and it helps us consolidate everything into one place and make it available to the entire nation. You talked about taking DNA samples upon arrest and and how that's a source for that uh, offender file that, that you have. How many states do that? How many states tell their law enforcement agencies when someone's arrested or perhaps convicted, they have to have a DNA sample taken. What's that look like? How does it vary across the states? So there is unfortunately no standard across the nation to take samples from um, individuals who are arrested. There are uh, at the moment 30 states, in addition to the federal government and the Department of Defense, that are allowed to take samples from qualifying arrested individuals. And I, I say qualifying because well, it needs to be qualified of it. Um, of those 30 states, 19 of them, as, as well as the federal government and Department of Defense, allow for the collection of these samples to happen at bookings. The remaining 11 states require probable cause before collection. Now, all states have different laws. So some allow collections for all felony arrests and others list out the eligible charges that qualify for DNA sample collection. And then the rest, the other 20 states, they do not have a law that allows the collection of DNA at this time. We'll be back to learn more about the DNA Support Unit after this brief break. Hey, everybody, it's your friend AG, and this episode of the Bureau is brought to you by BetterHelp. They provide professional, convenient online counseling. Life, as we know, is very unpredictable. We have ups and downs. It can be difficult and stressful. But we have to remember when difficulties arise, we don't have to face challenges alone. So if you're dealing with anything that's preventing you from living your happiest, fulfilling life, I recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional counseling to help you navigate life's challenges. They'll assess your needs, and they'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in less than 24 hours. As you know, I've had challenges with post-traumatic stress, uh, and I know how important it is to seek help. I know it's hard to do, but you can do it, and you don't have to face these challenges alone. I love how convenient BetterHelp services are. They're available for clients worldwide. You could log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating a great therapeutic match. It's very important for the process, and they make it easy and free to change a counselor if you want to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid's available. So visit their website and read testimonials like this one by BetterHelp user SU, who says of their counselor, 
quote, Meredith is the sweetest. Uh, she listens, acknowledges your feelings, and offers helpful advice. She helped me see from different perspectives. She's understanding, and most importantly, Meredith genuinely cares. I'm so grateful to have been able to meet her. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Bureau. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of a professional. Special offer for the Bureau listeners. You get 10% off your first month. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Bureau. And we're back with Dr. Liliana Moreno. Tell us a little bit about the specific mission of your unit. Your unit is called DNA Support. Why? What What do you do? What does a day look like or a week look like inside the unit? What's the mission? Let me start by saying there are four DNA units in the FBI laboratory. There's the DNA Casework Unit, the Federal DNA Database Unit, and the CODIS Unit. And the last one is the DNA Support Unit. Um, every unit has a different function. The The goal and the mission of the support unit is, like the name says, to support the other DNA units. So essentially what we do is we establish gaps. We identify gaps in technology and chemistries and workflows. And we try to come up with ideas and evaluate new chemistries and new technologies to make the caseworking unit more efficient or the databasing unit more efficient uh, we come up, we evaluate new chemistries that will be more sensitive or new technologies that will offer more information. So we're, we're the ones that, are, that, that identify the gaps, bridge the gaps, and then train the other units in these new technologies, write the SOPs, and help them incorporate these new technologies and chemistries into their workflows to make the science better. You mentioned uh, an acronym uh, for one of the units that many of our listeners might not be familiar with, and that's CODIS. What What's that about? CODIS is the Combined DNA Index System Unit, and they are essentially the gatekeepers of that filing cabinet that I was talking about earlier. So they're the ones that manage those um, DNA profiles and and the connections between the, the local, state, and federal labs so that they can all um, can consolidate their profiles into that massive database and be able to search, upload, and and, and get the hits when there is a match, get that information back to the to the appropriate parties. Got it. So it sounds like your unit is is at least in in large part involved in helping to standardize first first vet and learn new applications of science, but then to to literally write the book, so to speak, on standard operating procedures across law enforcement. Uh, does does that sound right? Do, does law enforcement? depend on the FBI, in a sense, and these working groups across agencies to get it right, to, to set the standards of the most credible use of DNA? I would say, I would like to think so. Uh, yes, that is that is the idea. And we do set the gold standard. They're not, we don't force them to follow any particular rules, but we set the guidelines and best practices so that everyone can take from that and apply them. Fantastic. Do you have any idea, doctor, how many cases are out there in evidence rooms of police departments and county crime labs and state labs across the country sitting there on a shelf saying, solve me, I have DNA on this shirt in this file, I have DNA on this sneaker or this blouse, any idea of how large that potential pool of evidence is today? I, I do not have a knowledge of the number of cases sitting on shelves in the various police departments or crime labs across the nation, but I 
I do know that there are federal funding opportunities to help with the elimination of backlog cases that require DNA testing. And I believe the Bureau of Justice Assistance their website offers more information on those opportunities. It would be uh, truly a tragedy if various agencies across the country at all levels did not avail themselves of funding that's that's there and available um, to help solve the backlog and bring closure to not only those cases sitting on their shelves, but perhaps to be matched with DNA in the FBI's file cabinets that could say, hey, the person you have is a person that we have for other crimes. Closing those those loops, connecting those dots, is just a fascinating process and needs to be taken advantage of. Um, if anybody's listening out there connected with state, county, municipal government, law enforcement, ask that question. Um, are we doing everything we can to connect those dots and avail, avail ourselves of available grants and, and monies? Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about a topic that many of us may not connect to the work you do with DNA. Tell us about Hurricane Dorian and how in the world DNA came to be associated with the tragic damage done and loss of life in Hurricane Dorian. So that is a very interesting question because it really doesn't make any sense at face, if you take it at face value. Um, but to answer that question, I need to explain first what rapid DNA is. So I'm going to come back to Hurricane Dorian in a moment, if I may. Please. So rapid DNA, it is a relatively new technology. It was developed for use in a booking station. And the idea behind rapid DNA was to have the booking officer collect a swap from an individual being arrested as they currently do, if, if they qualify, but not only collect the swab, run the swab and perform the DNA analysis on site in real time. So by way of background, currently, when an officer does that, they collect the, the buckle swab from an individual being arrested, that swab gets sent to the laboratory for analysis via mail. And that process can be really lengthy. By the time that DNA profile is obtained and searched against that database, the individual in question is no longer in custody. And if it is determined that he or she was wanted for another crime, the officials might not might now need to designate new resources to go and hunt them down, which, of course, wastes precious time and allows for that individual to potentially commit other crimes. So rapid DNA is, is an instrument that's no bigger than a, a, copy, a desktop copy machine. It's essentially a miniature laboratory that is capable of developing a DNA profile from a buckle swab and analyze the data without any manual intervention or knowledge of what DNA is or how it works. The data that's generated gets automatically uploaded into the database and automatically searched. And if there is a match to the profile developed from that individual, then the officer that performed the arrest, as well as the officials where that unsolved crime was committed, will both get a notification and that individual will be held until the agencies involved decide how to proceed. Last week, I introduced bipartisan legislation with Senators Feinstein, Lee, and Gillibrand to update our nation's laws to take account of this exciting new technology. Now, rapid DNA devices are self-contained. They're fully automated. 
uh, instruments that can be placed in booking stations and that can both develop a DNA profile from a cheek swab and compare the results against existing profiles in less than two hours. Now, my bill, the Rapid DNA Act of 2015, would allow law enforcement officials using FBI-approved rapid DNA uh, instruments to upload profiles generated by such devices to the FBI's combined DNA index system and perform database comparisons. Now, that was the original and is still the main goal of rapid DNA. Let me stop you there, because this, this mm -hmm. is an advancement even since I've retired from the FBI are you saying we're headed to the point or even in beta testing and piloting right now where police departments, upon arresting someone, may be able to do this themselves, so to speak, in, in rapid speed in their own police departments? That is correct. That That is the case. And these, these machines take no space. They're very easy to use. And they developed that DNA profile within two, in less than two hours. This is this is unbelievable, and 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 really, quite frankly, almost out of some science fiction movie or show that we <laughs> may have watched before. The notion that within a couple of hours, which in many places is a legal hold, right? They have to kick you loose at a certain amount of time, but during the period of a legal hold in a police department where you're being detained, that they could use a, a kit developed by the FBI, take your sample, stick it in the kit. And two hours later, um, know if you're a match to someone or some crime um, is just an amazing development. How 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 much more time do you think before this is in fairly common usage in our cities? I know that right now we're in the pilot uh, testing stages. I, I know there is a couple of states that have implemented the program and are um, piloting it. And we, the FBI, is as well. There's still a, a couple of the technology is there, so it's not, that's not the holdup. I think the holdup right now is uh, working out the, infra the the IT infrastructure so that we can get all the communications right and make sure that the searches and the notifications occur like they're supposed to. But it, it is getting there. I don't think, I think in, in, in a year or two, we should be able to deploy these to the booking stations and, and, and have these be a standard uh, procedure. And it's going to be game-changing, like you mentioned. Yeah, no, it's a game-changer, no question about it. Okay, so now we've got our background on what rapid DNA is. Help us solve the mystery of what it has to do with Hurricane Dorian. <laughs> so the technology, the rapid DNA technology, even though it was developed with the intent of being used at the booking station, the manufacturers of these instruments have gone the extra mile to enhance the technology so that other types of samples can be processed using the same instrumentation. So the focus remains on single source type samples. And when I say single source, I mean samples that are presumed to have originated from, from a single individual. So something like a, a, a big pool of blood or a sample from a tissue or a bone that we know are probably going to be clean and, and just one profile will be obtained from it rather than a sample from a doorknob or a keyboard that a lot of people come in contact with. So with that in mind, what does that have to do with Hurricane Dorian? Well, Hurricane Dorian was a Category 5 hurricane that battered the Bahamas in 2019, and it left behind a tremendous amount of devastation. And unfortunately, loss of lives were lost in the process. Now, the forensic laboratory in the Bahamas is not equipped to conduct complex DNA sample processing. And here at the FBI, we were trying to explore 
the suitability of rapid DNA for mass disaster victim identification. Because like I said, these samples are presumed to be from just one individual. It's a bone, it's a tissue <clears throat> that we expect to come from one individual only. So I am lucky enough to have some friends in the Bahamas and specifically in the, in the Bahamas Royal Police Force. And I learned about their dilemma. And I thought that perhaps we should reach out and collaborate with them. So they agreed, and we were able to provide humanitarian help and test the rapid DNA technology for disaster victim identification. We received a total of 47 exemplars. They were either tissue, bone, or teeth. And we processed them using, them, using both conventional DNA analysis processing as well as rapid DNA so that we could have a, a point of comparison. And we were able to generate data from all but one sample and compare the results to the DNA uh, data that was generated from presumed family members that were um, looking for missing individuals. And we were able to reunite them with their respective families and provide closure. And in the process, we were also able to test the, the capabilities and limitations of the rapid DNA technology and provide insight to the law enforcement community in general as to what type and amount of samples work, work best with the rapid DNA technology. This is something that would potentially offer a solution or a means for expedited response at scenes of mass disasters and help reduce the workload associated with such uh, on laboratory personnel, which are often overwhelmed with other very complex types of samples that are not suitable for rapid DNA analysis. Tell us about that. What makes a, a sample not suitable? What's what's an ideal sample in terms of you know how it's taken and from where it's taken, and then what's not uh, what's not a most optimal sample? So in terms of rapid DNA, a, an optimal sample would be a, a sample that's a single source. The machine is is designed so that if the sample is determined to be a mixture or is potentially a mixture or it's contaminated with say the person that collected that sample, if there are more, if, if the system determines that there is the potential that there's two or more individuals in that DNA profile, it it fails it. It doesn't it doesn't give you the profile. So an optimal sample for for rapid DNA would be a single source, a single source exemplar. Something from an intimate sample from an individual, say from the mouth, from the cheek, or any other body part. Or like I said, bone, which is presumed to be you know, only from one individual or, or a big puddle of blood where you presume that just one individual bled into it. Uh, complex samples are samples that are obtained from firearms or doorknobs or, or samples that are, have been exposed to the elements for a long period of time and are degraded. The DNA starts to break down and they're a little bit more complicated to analyze. And that requires a little bit more expertise and, and the hands of an analyst and the brains of an analyst to be able to make sense of that data. So we've talked about the advances with rapid DNA testing. What else is out there on the horizon? Where where do you see this going in terms of applications for law enforcement? Are, are we going to get to the place where the police will come to the FBI for assistance, maybe with an unsolved case? There'll be some crime scene evidence and you'll be able to say, look, we can't match this to anyone, but we can tell you a whole lot about the person you're looking for. Are we getting there? Yes, I, I would say that we are. We're working towards that goal right now. Um, we have this new technology. It's called Next Generation Sequencing. And that technology offers a much more detailed view into the DNA of an individual. And it can help establish things like 
the skin color, eye color, hair color, the ancestry or ethnicity of a particular person. And it is also a much more sensitive technique that the current technologies we're using, which means we can potentially see more information and generate data from samples from which we could not otherwise obtain um, any sort of information. So we, the, the technology allows the analysts to also explore many more locations or areas within that DNA using just one reaction and therefore maximizing the information that can be obtained from a single drop of blood, say, rather than having to perform multiple tests on a single item of evidence, which is sometimes impossible due to in insufficient material. So there, it's, it's a great tool to provide investigative leads. Maybe we cannot, like you said, match the individual, but at least we can provide investigative leads to, to help those law enforcement officers conductor case. Yeah, this also could be a game changer. Imagine the ability of the public to to help and imagine a law enforcement request. Uh, we see them now every day from the FBI and police departments. We are looking for a suspect who put these bombs down. We are looking for a suspect who was seen to have uh, shot folks and, and thrown the gun away. And now we have some DNA and we are looking for a man or a woman with blue eyes and blonde hair, narrowing down the, the pool of suspects, uh, generating all kinds of leads from the public. That's um, That also is quite the game changer. Absolutely. Dr. Liliana Morena has shared with us some fascinating scientific applications with DNA that are not only solving crimes now, but will solve crimes well into the future. And the horizon looks very bright for the application of science. Um, Lily, I want to not only thank you and your colleagues for what you do, but I also want to thank you for inspiring many young people out there with your story about tenacity, persistence that pays off, and also a story that your journey can take detours and end up getting to where you thought you might never have contemplated, but really where you were meant to be. I, uh, I thank you for what you do and for sharing your story with us. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Episode 4 of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Join us next week as we sit down with the head of the FBI's Threat Assessment Center, who shares the lessons learned from each mass shooting and the warning signs and indicators that someone you know is on the path to violence. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 